This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. As part of the 2019 WDET Book Club, we're reading Dr. Monahan Atisha's book, What the Eyes Don't See. And although this next conversation doesn't relate directly to public health, water, or infrastructure, it is a part of the book. Atisha writes about her youthful ignorance of Father Conklin and his widespread message of racism and nationalism, despite the fact that she grew up in Royal Oak, which is the same city where Conklin had his headquarters a few decades earlier. Joining us now to shed a little light on the dark history of who Father Conklin was and how he was able to have this nationally broadcasted show filled with bigotry from right here in Metro Detroit is Andrew Lapin, a writer and podcast producer who's been researching Conklin. Andrew, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. So uh, let's start with a clip of Father Conklin speaking on the radio in the 1930s. And according to the reformed or liberal Jews, the world is waiting, according to them, for a messianic age, which will be the result of Jewish national leadership. An age of naturalism, which will have for its end the subjection of all nations to the naturalistic philosophy of race supremacy. Already Nazism has set up an erroneous defense mechanism against this racial supremacy. In doing so, it has fallen into an error similar to that entertained by liberal Jews. An error which, with its preliminary restrictions against Christianity, will lead to the absolute rejection of Christ. Okay, so that is a recording from the 1930s of Father Conklin speaking on the radio from right here in Metro Detroit in uh, terms that uh, I don't think you can call anything but quite bigoted. Um, Andrew Lapin, tell us who Father Conklin was and how he came to occupy this really prominent media space from here in Detroit. Right. So Father Coughlin was the founding priest of the Shrine of the Little Flower Catholic Church in Royal Oak, Michigan. Uh, he came here in about 1926 and built up this church into this really massive, uh, ornate structure. If you've passed uh, Woodward still and 12 there, Miles, right still at there. And 12. It's a still yeah. very active parish, very Absolutely. important school here in the community. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. no question. But the way he was able to build it up into what it is today was through this radio show that he had, which was nationally syndicated and which over the course of the 20s and the 30s gradually became um, very conspiratorial, very anti-Semitic, as you heard in that pretty intense clip. Um, he was uh, undoubtedly a, a sympathizer with uh, Nazism, or at least an apologist for them. Uh, he wrote letters to Mussolini. He uh, had a lot of ideas about the direction of America and about how uh, outsider classes like Jews and immigrants were uh, you know, were destroying it. And he was able to rally millions of followers all around the country uh, to to basically try to take their country back, or you know what was the 1930s version of making America great again, yeah. that, and that became his most infamous legacy. So, so, how does he grow though to this to this size? I mean, this was a very very uh, widely broadcast uh, 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 media message that he, that he had. How did he build that from this 
what would have been back then a pretty small parish initially in Royal Oak, Michigan. Yeah, absolutely. He was a populist media figure, uh, and because he came around right at the beginnings of radio, um, he was able to seize the public imagination in a way that uh, America was kind of unprepared for. So he mostly survived on uh, you know small dollar donations from his donors. He was able to make individual syndication deals with radio stations across the country. And you got to remember, this was during the Great Depression, right? Most people, a lot of people are out of work. And yet he had this huge uh, disaffected uh, base of, of listeners who were primarily white working class. Uh, they were upset that they weren't getting work and they heard him telling them that it wasn't their fault, that it was uh, the problems of you know the communists and all these outside forces swirling around them. And they, sp- uh, they sent what little uh, money they had directly to Coughlin, so much so that uh, a new post office was built in Royal Oak uh, just to handle the volume of mail that Coughlin was receiving on a daily basis. My goodness. Um, uh, and this is somebody who had an incredible effect on uh, the narrative around um, uh, politics and culture and religion then, but but it casts forward today. I mean, uh, this is somebody who... Um, who coined the phrase America first. Is that right? Well, so I'll clarify here. He didn't coin the phrase that it definitely existed before, but what Coughlin did was was bring the phrase America first really into the forefront, especially during the, the movement of, of isolationism, you know, when America was debating, should we go to war? Like, what, what do we think about Europe? And and he was holding these rallies and he would, he would shout America first. He would say, leave America to the Americans. He really wanted to keep the U.S. out of Europe. And uh, one of the ways he did that was by, you know, painting... Uh, Europe's response to uh, uh, to Jews as, as as legitimate. Basically, he was saying that 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 Jews were a legitimate threat over there, and so he he had this way with words. Uh, he was a fantastic orator. He was a very theatrical performer, and and he was also just a, a, a pathological liar, sort of at all times. And and he he had a specific vision of America that he was trying to get across, and his own personal thirst for power. And this was the way he did it. He really rode on the backs of of um, millions of Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Andrew Lapin, uh, an author and uh, someone who's working on a podcast, uh, doing some research into Father Coughlin, a very controversial media figure from our past here in Metro Detroit. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us, does Father Coughlin's legacy here in Metro Detroit shape your view of the history of this community in any way? Do you remember these things? I mean, you'd have to be pretty old now, I think, to remember uh, maybe firsthand these recordings. But do you remember people talking about Father Coughlin and the things that he was saying and the effect it was having on conversations about culture and race and religion? Does it bother you that something like that was based right here in our own backyard in Metro Detroit? Uh, And do you think we've made significant progress since that time? Or do you think there are parallels between Father Coughlin's brand of pro-fascism and anti-Semitism and some of the things that we are hearing right now in 2019. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page uh, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Andrew, I want to talk about the parallels uh, just between the way that you are describing Father Conklin and uh, some of the things that we're seeing now, this idea of taking a phrase, for instance, and and making it 
uh, a sort of popular rallying point for division uh, or or a bigotry. Uh, you call them a pathological liar. Um, <laughs> there's somebody else I, I think of these days when when I hear that phrase. I mean, it's almost eerie the 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 direct parallels between something like America First and Make America Great Again, or somebody who in the 1930s uses falsehoods to try to influence you know decisions about uh, you know the, the the rise of fascism in Europe. And somebody who today does that to, to confuse us about other things. I mean, it, it really is almost a, a directly repetitive cycle. Absolutely. I, I'm glad you're making that connection because this was my angle back into the Father Coughlin story. You know, the thing that I, the thing that I find really interesting about him is that he went off the air nearly 80 years ago. Uh, he died exactly 40 years ago. Most people, especially of my generation, don't really recognize the name today. And yet he seems to have created this blueprint for essentially how to be a fascist in America. Uh, and that blueprint, whether people realize it or not, is is being worked again today, sort of exploiting people's inherent fears and, and prejudices and using um, I, the iconography of what we associate with America to denigrate uh, personal enemies and all that stuff. You, you still see that today. And I think that uh, he was very savvy. He was an extremely savvy media figure. He knew how to insert himself into the national dialogue. Um, he was an ardent uh, FDR supporter, actually, until uh, FDR was actually elected and, and kind of scorned him. And then Coughlin uh, was able to recruit a, a third-party presidential candidate to challenge him in 1936. And so we can see that he really wanted to be this national player, and he saw all the traction he was getting from some of his more hateful uh, rhetoric and, uh, and I think we do need to keep in mind today, how are we framing our big political debates today? How were these things framed in the past when America was still legitimately debating things like Nazism? Uh, I, I think the, the, Coughlin has a lot to teach us today if we look at the, the, the course of his, of his life and his career and how people responded to him back then. I think we can learn a lot about today. Yeah, yeah. Again, 313 577 1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Joel in Royal Oak. Joel, welcome to the program. Hi, good morning. So Hi. I'm a Royal Oaker. I live literally in the shadow of the shrine, drive past it multiple times a day. Um, one comment I had is I'm just struck by the failure of the shrine to acknowledge its history. There was an article in the free press, uh, might even be like 15 or 20 years ago, noting that and that the shrine has a little um, uh, information thing inside it, um, talking about um, the father. And, you know, it, the, the Free Press article says how inaccurate it is and how it doesn't talk about, you know, the uglier side of the father. And, and the response to the shrine was, oh, it's done basically in stone. It'd be too hard to change it. So later on, you know, I've looked on the internet, and still on their website and social media, they still don't really acknowledge its history. And I'm not holding the present people responsible for what was done, but they really do, especially in these times, need to come forward and acknowledge to the community mm. how ugly it was. Mm. Uh, Joel, I really appreciate the call and uh, the perspective there. Uh, Andrew Lapin, I have to admit, I don't, I don't think I know what uh, what the shrine has done to try to address this or or 
maybe atone, I guess, for uh, its role in in um, supporting Father Conklin's uh, message. Is Joel right that 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 has not taken place? Sure. So first, I'll just say that Shrine has been supportive of my work, and they've been good in, in letting me enter their space and talk to some of their uh, their current uh, clergy staff. But it is true that they have their own version of the Father Coughlin history, and their version prefers to emphasize the work he did to to build the church. Uh, as, as you know, build his flock, really. And they sort of, uh, they do kind of glaze over the the more hateful, bigoted aspects of his radio show. They note that he was a, a popular political figure and that he, he, he said things that were controversial, but they don't really get into uh, the really nitty-gritty fact that he was playing in the far-right fringes of American politics and that there were militias, violent pro-Christian militias that were taking his word as gospel and going into the streets and, and committing violent acts. And I think it is important uh, to keep in mind uh, how we remember figures like this. The question of historical memory within institutions is going to play a big part in in us learning the right lessons from the past. So I do think it's important to, to, to keep uh, to, to keep the true scope of, of someone like him in mind. Um, there's also a, a story that, that people like to tell um, involving Father Coughlin and the Ku Klux Klan, where mm-hmm. he was supposedly inspired to start his radio show because the Klan uh, burned a cross on the lawn where they were going to build shrine because the Klan was not a fan of Catholics. Um, there's not really a lot of evidence that this actually occurred, and yet there is a plaque uh, at the shrine uh, uh, church that that sort of states this because it's a, it's a useful origin myth to have. Yeah. Uh, so everyone kind of likes to play the victim when, when it suits them, but uh, it, it, as far as the lifespan of Father Coughlin, he was definitely more perpetrator than victim. Uh, you know, um, I, I think that's it's one of the questions that faces so many institutions: how you confront or atone for or try to make up for for, for history. I mean, there's never, I think, an easy path to do that. Uh, but but I, you know, I, I think this one is particularly confounding. Um, uh, given, given uh, again, given the, the the current context where we're being asked again, I guess to con- to confront these things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I I I, I will say that uh, you know Shrine has made some progress lately, and they've done they issued a public apology for his actions in I believe 1993. And uh, and and since I've begun interacting with with the clergy, they have done more to re, you know reach out to the Jewish community. And uh, certainly, you know, do we need them apologizing forever? Like I, I think that is also not quite the way to go about it. I think you know we need more open, honest conversations about uh, these sort of unsavory figures from our past and how we are learning from them and moving forward. And and I do think having an honest presentation of of who uh, he was would would go a long way in, in that regard. Yeah, uh, Joel, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Let's go to Roberta in Royal Oak. Roberta, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi. Hi. I, uh, my family was Protestant, but we grew up in the parish of Father Coughlin, and we all, everybody I knew said Coughlin, but anyway. Um, <laughs> now, I heard, or my mom used to say, that the archdiocese took him off the air off the radio, hmm. um, and uh, the author would maybe know about that. Also, there was another story that I heard more than once, that there was a man during World War II, uh, there was a man in uniform there, you know, in the service <clears throat> at one of his 
you know, at a church service, and mm-hmm. he used to carry on from the pulpit with some of these, uh, you know, his mm-hmm. ideas, and uh, that this man in uniform got up and walked out. Huh. <laughs> huh. So that was wow. the story they yeah. used to circulate. Uh, Roberta, I re- appreciate uh uh, the call and those and those memories. Uh, uh, Andrew, did the archdiocese have a response to to this and take him off the air? Also, what did the Vatican have to say about what he was doing? I'll, I'll say first of all, it's so great to get these kinds of calls. I would love to <laughs> people col- who remember. Yeah, absolutely. Right? I'm I'm actually trying to collect the stories of of people who remember uh, either attending shrine when Coughlin was still alive, or maybe they had parents who heard him on the radio. Uh, please reach out to me. I'm on Twitter at Andrew Lapin, or you can go to my website, andrewlapin.org. There's a contact form. I'd love to get your story if you have something to share. Uh, on the note of how Coughlin uh, left the air in 1940, there was a lot going on behind the scenes between the Vatican, which was very displeased with him, um, and the FBI, which actually had an open file on him. And they were uh, preparing a case uh, basically to charge him with with acts of sedition, with, with undermining the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. Um, the Vatican was... Uh, clearly upset with Coughlin, but uh, for a long time his direct superior, the Detroit bishop, uh, was supportive of him and sort of gave him uh, protection. And then Coughlin honestly grew so powerful that the Vatican was worried that if they excommunicated him from the church that he would simply take his followers with him and become a a kind of martyr figure. So they were very careful, very hands-off through most of the 30s. But, uh, but eventually, Coughlin agreed to, to leave the airwaves quietly. He did still have a, uh, a newspaper that printed far more extreme anti-Semitic material. The newspaper was called, ironically, Social Justice. Um, he stopped printing that in 1942. So, so we're really talking kind of right up until um, uh, the U.S. Uh, entered World War II just, just a couple years later. And so Coughlin's brand became out of fashion. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Andrew Lapin. Writer and podcast producer, thanks very much for being here. Thanks so much. Today. Yeah. And you can hit Andrew up on Twitter, at Andrew Lapin, as he said, uh, with stories about Father Coughlin that you remember. Help out with his research. All right, that's going to do it for me today. I'll be back on Monday, and I hope you will, too. We're going to have Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson join the program to talk about next week's elections on Tuesday. And I'm going to talk with Republican State Senator Pete Lucido. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.